All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 222 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, back from two weeks with no internet. Let's hope I didn't miss a momentous event in British history. No, nothing happened. No. You're fine. Awesome. Nothing happened. Awesome. Never so quiet here, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> I found out the Queen had died three days after she died from a Malaysian taxi driver who just went, oh, sorry about your Queen. And Gary and I were like, oh God, is she dead? <laughs> and then um, my mate Karen texted... Boris and the Queen on Monday, Liz Truss and King Charles on Friday. And I was like, worst Craig David song ever. (laughs) Yeah. Can I just say, my mum did actually say in the family WhatsApp group, so awful that one of the last things she did was welcome Liz Truss to office. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As if that was like genuinely a tragedy for the Queen herself. So, uh, well done, Kath. Bang on the money there. It's a thing that finished her off. Yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I bought a Wi-Fi booster and it's basically changed my life. In that, like, because you had so much internet, you found out the Queen had died before she was dead. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all found out the Queen had died before they officially <laughs> said she was dead. But uh, yeah, um, I can actually, you know, use things outside of my lounge. I don't have to be using my phone data to be listening to something in the kitchen. Does it go all the way to the garden? I have yet to try that yet. Because it's actually genuinely cold. It is. Got a blanket on. I slept under a duvet last night. Wowzers. Wowzers. Is this the first time you've been cold in four years? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's basically been the first time I've been cold since, yeah, I think since my early 40s. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) On which note, Jen? (laughs) On which note? I'm Jen Offord. And being 40 is being in bed at 9.30pm. Apparently, so I did on no, my. It's um, not. Well, no, actually, last night, and this is pretty rock and roll, guys. I did stay up until half past midnight sewing, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> my birthday party on Saturday, we had like a thing in the day, and then we went to the pub in the evening. And Lyra's got a bit of a cold, which I've now got, and apparently, I don't really remember it because I was quite drunk by this point. Apparently, at about nine thirty, I just started saying, "I'm so tired." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we left the pub and I was home by 10. So there you go. Incredible scenes. I'm getting messages, Jen, saying your network bandwidth is low. I don't know why I'm getting them, but I am. Mine? Mm. 
Why are you getting those messages? That's weird. Because she's got so much Wi-Fi now. (laughs) (laughs) Too much responsibility for Hannah. Coming up, I talk to Dr. Jodie Gardner about debt, the coming hard times, and why the demise of payday loan companies might not have been the victory it first seemed. In Journey Off the Blocks, I talk to Kate Cross and Sophia Dunkley about the changing face of women's cricket. And in Rated or Dated, is 1952 Singing in the Rain the musical for people who hate musicals? Let's find out! (laughs) Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by University Lecturer in Law at the University of Cambridge, author of The Future of High Cost Credit, Rethinking Payday Lending, and our favourite debt expert, Dr Jodie Gardner. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me back. Back is the right word. We spoke during the pandemic about debt and we were talking about very much a coming crisis. Admittedly, it was pretty bleak when we spoke before, but I don't know that we were able to predict really what the coming crisis would be. But here it is. Energy price spike. Something else that we also spoke about was payday loans. And you mentioned that you were writing a book about payday loans. And I said, come back and talk to us. So here we are. And you have a terrifying statement for me, which is that a million people possibly owe money to loan sharks. We've seen a huge spike in the increase of people relying on illegal lending or loan sharks just in order to make ends meet. And you're right, just over a million people is a terrifying statistic. But what's even more horrifying is that was from March this year. And things have only gotten a lot worse. Wow. According to the research that you sent me, that's actually 700,000 more than you thought it would be. Yeah. So how bad are things going to get? Maybe we could start with, if you could explain to people who possibly don't remember when Wonga collapsed, what caused that? What caused the start of the end for payday loans? Okay, I think we probably need to go back a little bit further if you don't Please do. And what we saw in kind of 2006 to 2012 was a huge increase in reliance on payday loans and other forms of high-cost credit like door-to-door lending. And that was from two main sources. One was a government policy of financialization and opening up the credit market and focusing on allowing people to access these services. And the second one was the global financial crisis which resulted in a huge decrease in ability to access credit. Banks became much more risk adverse. So lower socioeconomic individuals or people who had an impaired credit history or were a risk at all could no longer access credit cards or bank accounts. And therefore, they were squeezed out of mainstream banking into alternative banking. So we saw this explosion of high-cost credit. And depending on kind of how you define high cost credit and the statistics you look at, we saw about a tenfold increase in five to six years in the people who were relying on these types of financial products just to get by. I think that's a point we need to stress, which is it is just to get by. It is not to buy a new telly or to go on holiday. It is to do something that the rest of us would find exceptionally normal. So the Competition and Markets Authority did a big survey of people who were using these kind of products. And it said that 80% of people were using them for day-to-day expenses. So a car has broken down or a fridge has broken down or they've got a sudden decrease in income. So they get ill and they're on statutory sick pay or they're on zero-hour contracts and their hours go down. So we aren't talking about the, I want to go on a luxury holiday or I want a big TV. We are talking about eight out of 10 loans were just to get by for everyday necessities. So it was really their safety net. And we saw it peak in 2012. And then the Financial Conduct Authority got involved and there was a lot of pressure on them to decrease reliance in these kind of products. So what we saw in 2014 to 2015 were a range of reforms that were put forward to increase affordability assessments meaning that lenders had to do more research to make sure that the loans were affordable and there was an interest rate cap put in. So these two measures saw a decrease 
in the amount of loans, but it was still at quite a high rate, much higher than it was before the global financial crisis and before the financialization of the markets. And then what happened is that the financial ombudsman got involved and that is a body that is an alternative dispute resolution. So consumers can take lenders to the financial ombudsman service um, if they believe that their loans were in the breach of law. And what's amazing is that of all of the cases about high cost credit and payday loans, it varies year to year, but between six out of 10 or eight out of 10 loans were found to actually be in breach of the legal requirements. The majority of these cases were found in favour of the consumer. And once that happened, it started kind of a roll-on effect. And it was actually these affordability assessment cases under the financial ombudsman that really resulted in the death of Wonga and Quickquid and these big payday lenders that we'd seen running the markets. So, for example, one affordability assessment against Wonga ended up costing them £330 million. Wow. Let's take my breath away amount of money. <laughs> Isn't that a good thing to take your breath away about? Yeah. They had to refund millions of customers of fees because they determined that the model they were using was in breach of the legal requirements. So we saw a number of these actions come through and that resulted in a real reduction because the big players left the market. Uh, a lot of them became insolvent. The general mood about this in the media was, was that this was a really good thing that people weren't being dragged into ridiculously high interest loans you are here to argue that that isn't necessarily the case and if a million people are going already to somebody else for money that would show certainly that you are correct let me ask you another question who are we talking about do we know any more information about them i'm guessing women is pretty high up that list. Women are much more likely to borrow from payday lenders and high-cost credit providers, particularly single mothers with children. It's not as clear-cut as lower socioeconomic groups are more likely, even though there is a significant overlap. It's much more on kind of financial vulnerability. Mm. So if you're on a reasonable wage, but you're on a zero-hour contract and your income goes up and down, then you're much more likely to need to be able to use these services to kind of make and meet when you've got a downturn in income. So what we see is this intersectional vulnerability coming up. You know, people who are already financially marginalised for one reason or another are excluded from mainstream credit providers and therefore need to go to these high-cost credit providers. But if these high-cost credit providers have become insolvent or are no longer lending to that specific group of people, and they have a downturn in income, where do they go? Yeah. And that's the big question. And in the 2014-2015 reforms, the Financial Conduct Authority said, well, we believe these people are going to be better off without accessing these sorts of high-cost loans. And some people will be better off. Some people will be using that loan because they got tempted by a, a big TV or they wanted to go on a luxury holiday. Mm. And when they can't get the money, they won't use that luxury or discretionary um, expense. And that's probably a good thing. But what we do know is the vast majority of people were using it just to get by, to fix their car, to put food on the table, to make sure that the household continued running. And when that one form of credit was removed... The big question is, where did they go? And it now seems like a lot of them went to illegal lenders. Can we define the word loan shark? Am I to assume that for the most part, these aren't good deals that people are getting from them? Interestingly enough, there was a case a number of years ago where someone was prosecuted for illegal lending. So it's a criminal offence. They are committing a crime. And their defence was, but my interest rate is less than Wonga's. <laughs> um, it didn't work in a court of law. <laughs> they were still found guilty. But it does just show how complex this area yeah. is. And I think another statistic that really struck at me from the recent uh, report from the Centre for Social Justice is that over 50% of people borrowing from illegal loan sharks thought that the loan shark was their friend. Mm. 
they thought that this person was doing them a favor lending them money so it is a really complex murky area here but any way you look at it the person who has lent money to an illegal lender is already incredibly vulnerable and by entering into this transaction they're only increasing their vulnerability yeah so government policy that ends up pushing and a record number of people into these illegal loans can't really be a good government policy absolutely and of course it's happening at the same time as as the cost of of living crisis you know food is much more expensive fuel is much more expensive interestingly it's also coming at a time when somewhere around 23% of the people who are struggling at the moment it's a result of an incident that's happened to them because I don't I, I mean obviously poverty is an incredibly complex thing and one of those incidents is divorce and we just spent two years locked in our houses with each other a lot of relationships haven't necessarily made it through statistically we're seeing that so it's it's almost like a perfect storm how do we fix it Jodie? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Hannah. We're looking at a perfect storm here. And I think a lot of people have taken their foot off the pedal because of the announcement the government made about capping fuel costs at 2500 And because that was the biggest concern people had was, you know, how to eat their homes. Mm. Once that appeared to be solved, I think people kind of went, oh, okay, it will be, it will be fine now. And it's not going to be fine. You know, in June... This year, in the middle of summer, we had 10,000 households contact citizens' advice saying they couldn't afford to put money in their prepaid meters. And that was in the summer, and that was when fuel was less than it will be under the cap. Yeah, I think that is a massive problem. I mean, I've seen a lot of what I would call activist accounts that are sort of generically activist. And by this, I mean on social media, as opposed to about a specific thing. And I noticed there's a lot of pivoting to um, talking about sort of the cost of living. And at the same time, as someone who grew up in a house with a prepaid meter in it, I've got to say, a lot of people have absolutely no idea of what they're talking about because it isn't a case of use the electricity, negotiate how you're going to pay it later. If you haven't got it, you haven't got it. The food in your fridge is rotting. You haven't got the lights on. It's terrible. Yeah, And this is, again, where we see this intersectional disadvantage coming in. Because whilst we can say, well, 2,500 is much better than the 5,200 mm. that estimated, it's not going to be equal to different households. And you're absolutely right. If you're on a prepaid meter, you have to have that money now yeah. to heat your home. And the other thing is, if you're in that situation, you're much more likely to be in a fuel inefficient house mm. that just costs more to heat. And so if your lights are turned out, if you can't feed your family, how are you going to be able to go to work? How are your kids going to be able to perform in school? And we've got to think of all of these ongoing consequences of the the situation that we're in. And as awful as it sounds, we have food banks. Food banks are at a record high usage and it's only going to get worse over winter. But we have food banks that people can go to to prevent starvation But fuel is a basic human right. It's a basic necessity. And we're going to come to a situation where people have a choice between heating their homes or going to an illegal lender to get the money. And that is such a depressing choice. This is really back in the Victorian period. Mm. Those are the choices we're giving households. And there just doesn't seem to be any sort of political appetite to really address these issues. I mean, were there any political appetite? What is it that needs doing? Well, prior to this kind of pre-global financial crisis, we had what was called a social fund, which was a lender of last resort, where people who were on government welfare assistance or lower income could go to the government and get an interest-free or very low-interest loan to help bridge the gaps. Uh, As wonderful as the the cap on electricity is, it is a cap that affects people equally across income levels and across um, kind of equality. It would be much better to have a targeted program where you're giving more assistance to the people who need it and less assistance to the people who don't need it. 
Yeah. We can also look internationally at different models. Australia has an incredible no interest and low interest loan scheme that's run by one of their major banks, the National Australia Bank, and a charity called Good Shepherd Microfinance. And that's been exceptionally successful in really competing against the high cost credit providers. So there's many different models we can do, but we need politicians to care about these issues and we need that mm. impetus and energy and will. Of course, there's a way to do it. We're one of the richest countries in the world. We can create a system where everyone can afford to heat their homes and everyone can afford to have food. We've made political choices to be in the situation that we're in now. Yeah, I mean, it, it literally is the bare minimum, isn't it? I mean, even prehistory man had two needs, which was somewhere warm to go and something to eat. It's 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 staggering that it's that this is where we are. I think we need to go back to kind of what we consider as fuel poverty. And the definition of fuel poverty now is when someone's spending more than 10% of their income on fuel and heating their homes. And even with the cap that is put in place, we're still likely to have about 6.7 million people going into fuel poverty this winter. So I think it's really important to remember that the cap has not solved everything. It's it's made a situation that was going to be terrifying where we were going to have one in three households in fuel poverty. But we're still entering kind of unprecedented times and we still need to keep that pressure on to make sure that we do something for these 6.7 million households. Yeah, because that's that's a really interesting point because one of the things that's again hard for people to understand when they they haven't really grown up around poverty is that there are sometimes people in your life that you can ask for help you know that have done a bit better members of your family that have done a bit better for themselves that you could ask for help but those people are now having their finances strained so that the person in your life that you could go can you tide me over and lend me 50 quid till the end of the month they might not have it this time either I think standing charges are ridiculously high as well I have a water tank in my loft and it burst. And this was back in March. And it took absolutely ages to get someone to come and repair, to get me a new one fitted. I didn't have any hot water or any heating for about three months, but it was fine. You know, it was, it was the summer. I didn't need heating. And I boil a kettle to do the washing up. I have a shower that's electric. So I did have some form of hot water. But so basically I used no gas for about four months. So I was really surprised at how big my, my bill still was, despite the fact that I didn't use a single. The meter reading was, I think it had gone up, what like rolled over one thing and that was it. And this comes back to kind of Boris Johnson and all these political leaders mm. going, you just need to reduce, buy a new kettle and they're only £10 and that will solve all your problems. And I think that just shows how incredibly divorced they are from the lived experience yeah. of the people who are actually being impacted by these policies. And I don't want to be overdramatic, but if we currently have 1 million people using illegal loans, and that was in March this year before things started to get really bad and before the cost of living really hit. If you remember when I was talking about the increase in reliance on high-cost credit, we saw a six-fold increase over a few years, if we have a similar type of increase now in people needing access to high-cost credit but not being able to use the legal lenders and the majority of that goes into an increased demand for illegal lenders, if we're looking at the same sort of statistics, it could be nearly one in six households that need to turn to illegal lenders just to get by this winter. That is horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Jodie, what else are you working on at the moment? So I'm I'm following these kind of issues. The, the book that I, I wrote, I was finishing up just as the impacts of COVID and cost of living were hitting. I'm now working on a book that looks at the impact of debt and austerity measures in light of COVID. So it's a follow-up from the previous one looking at debt and austerity, and now we're looking at debt and COVID. And one of the messages that we're getting from this book, which is incredibly depressing, is that not only did COVID have incredibly negative consequences for health, for the economy, mm. for society, for trust, for all of these different um, kind of statistics across society, it also increased inequality on so many levels. 
So we saw these really small steps that we'd taken forward in terms of class equality, gender equality, race equality, education equality, all of these movements, as small as they might have been, that we had moved forward. And what we've seen is it took 18 months, it took this pandemic to not only go backwards to where we were, but in fact, to go behind. So particularly for gender equality, we've seen huge step backwards in terms of women's role in the household and their professional progression. And I think it just shows us how incredibly fragile all of these steps forward that we're taking are. And we need to remember to keep up the fight and we need to remember to keep pushing to move forward because just because we've taken steps forward in the past, it doesn't mean that they're permanent and that can't go backwards. The pandemic has shown us so beautifully but so tragically Mm. just how fragile these steps are. And yet, right at the start of the pandemic, there was actual genuine hope that the pandemic might do the opposite. You know, the idea that women might be able to fit work around their other commitments and, and things like that. Well, there was, I can remember there being optimism at the start of if we can show bosses that we don't have to work the hours that they want us to work, we just have to do the job around the time. And yeah, that's that's a dream that seems almost laughable now. Unfortunately, I think it was misplaced optimism. <laughs> it's unusual for me to have optimism, Jodie. <laughs> it's not so unusual for it to be misplaced. This has been absolutely brilliant. Thanks ever so much for talking to us. Um, yeah, when you write that, please come back again. I'd love to. Always love chatting with you, Hannah. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by England women's cricket team members, Kate Cross. Hello, Kate. Hi, Jen. How are you? Good, thank you. And Sophia Dunkley. Hello, Sophia. Hello, Jen. You're chatting to me ahead of the upcoming women's one-day international match against India, which you'll be playing at Lords. Can you tell me a little bit about it and the significance of it, please? So, yeah, it'll be the decider of our series. So we've actually got two matches before we go to Lords, And I think the significance for us is that we're playing at a big ground like Lords, and um, we've not played an international game there since the 2017 World Cup final. So, yeah, it's going to be a pretty significant day, and it's actually the last game of our season as well. So, hopefully, we can finish it off with a, a nice win at a big ground in front of a big crowd. Kate, so I spoke to you for a standard issue back when we were a magazine about seven years ago, and Sophia, you're kind of relatively new to the England team. So I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about the changing face of the game in that time. Kate, you were the first female cricketer to be accepted into the Lancashire Academy. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a long time ago now. I was 15 when that happened. I mean, the main thing now that stands out to me is that that wouldn't happen anymore there's girls academies and there's girls emerging player programs that you can go and train with people who look like you and do cricket whereas when I was that age that wasn't a thing for me so again it was something pretty significant because a it was the first time that it happened but it was actually the moment that I probably realized I should take my cricket seriously and look to yeah invest a bit more time in it um, and maybe I might be able to play for England so It was obviously quite daunting to be the only girl training with a load of lads, but that's actually what I was doing since I was about eight years old. So I was kind of used to that, just not in probably as professional a setting as the Lancashire Academy was. And Sophia, did you have a sort of similar experience? You started off playing in an all-boys team, didn't you? And then you moved to an all-girls team. How much do you feel like things have changed? Yeah, I think when I was probably 11 or 12, like playing in a boys team was probably the only option really until I uh, was the only thing I knew until I discovered girls teams through like trialing for Middlesex my county at the time but I think now if you kind of look at at the girls that age there's so many more girls clubs that that people can join and a lot more provision there for girls which I think is very different to what we had and and it's nice to see that as as much as I did love playing the boys club and it was a great experience I think once to join a girls club it definitely felt a lot more inclusive and kind of a place where I felt more comfortable so it's great to see that a lot of girls now just have that straight away they don't really have to kind of go looking for it it's kind of more there for them which is yeah it's great 
when a lot of people think about cricket, they kind of think of these really grandiose grounds, light lords and these kind of like posh dudes playing the sport. And obviously that's that's not your background. And I wondered to what extent do you think that kind of perception that people have maybe puts people off getting involved who aren't necessarily from that background? You see like a trend, I guess, maybe more in the men's game, but of like maybe like private school education, things like that. And I think it can kind of get pigeonholed into a category on the whole. But I think, you know, as the game kind of evolving, there's a lot more getting done to try and kind of get rid of that kind of stereotype and open up the game to a lot more different backgrounds, which I guess is obviously hard um, a few years ago because obviously it can be quite an expensive sport because there's a lot you've got to think about going into it. But I think a lot of the work being done the last you know, especially the last year, but the last couple of years is, you know, definitely helping to kind of open that up a little bit more and, and yeah, ultimately make it a little bit more inclusive. But I think it's important, you know, not to have that stereotype about cricket because, it, you know, it doesn't really matter what kind of background you come from. It, it should be a game for everyone to get involved in. I wondered if either of you would be able to tell me a little bit about the We Got Game platform and what that's doing to change perceptions of women's cricket. Yeah, so We Got Game, we started that at the beginning of this summer and it was Basically, it started out with a chat with us as players um, and who we are and how we got into cricket and why we play cricket and why we love it. And it's now become a real staple part of our summer. At all the games we've played at, there's some sort of we got game, something that kids can go and look at and take pictures of or whatever. But the, the crux of it is that basically it doesn't matter who you are, what you do, what you're into, what you wear, how you look like cricket is a game for everyone and it's about us kind of empowering that as the England team to have different personalities and a lot of it's quite big on social media like you kind of bring yourself out on your own social media platforms and I guess the common thing is that we all love cricket and we all come together to play cricket but it's basically just that anyone can any girl out there anyone can be part of we got game because it's it's just inclusive for everyone and we want everyone to be a part of that as well. I think Kate summed it up very well. I think it's just kind of getting our personalities out there. You know, I think it's important to know that we're more than just cricketers and and sometimes that kind of gets lost in, in translation a bit. So it's nice to kind of show a different side to us and get the public to see that as well. I, I know like Judy Murray, who I've interviewed before, has said that about tennis. She thinks it's really important to get like the personality of the of the female tennis players out there for people to see, to, to engage with. How important do you think that is do you think it's important in men's and women's sports or do you think women are kind of I don't know I guess encouraged more to do that than the guys are do you think that that maybe people feel that women have to do more to make women's sport appealing or engaging I don't know that it's to make it more engaging or appealing but I know that growing up like having a social media presence was huge because there wasn't really anyone else promoting women's cricket so Mm. I remember like we got really actively encouraged to tweet about when we had fixtures because obviously if people followed me, they were probably cricket fans or women's cricket fans. But from like a, a real personal opinion, I just think that some of the people that I follow closely are the people who show their personalities because they show that they're human beings before they're footballers or tennis players or cricketers, whatever it is. Um, and one of my role models growing up was Andrew Flintoff and he was mm. big for that on the pitch. Like he just had a persona that he went out and played with and that attracted me to the game because I I loved you know his, his ability to entertain so I think it's important for different reasons but I wouldn't say it's the the thing that kind of makes women's sport more engaging I, I just think it helps generally in sport male or female. I wondered what you made of the recent success of the lionesses in women's football you know in terms of popularizing women's sport women's football is sort of a bit further down the road than a lot of other sports are and i wondered if you see like a knock-on effect on cricket and, and other sports as well from the successes that they've had do you think it's changing the picture across the board for women's sport? for us it was obviously really exciting because we were you know loving supporting it and watching it and I think you could definitely kind of see the knock-on effect of you know people getting really excited about um, their campaign and kind of I guess it just kind of opened the interest into other sports and then you kind of see oh there's women's I don't know women's cricket on tonight or this one tonight and we kind of had the hundred in a 
100 competition quite soon after that, the Euros, um, which was kind of on every day and on BBC. But I think kind of just the vibes, I guess, you feel around the sports and, and people getting involved, I think it really does, yeah, have an effect on the sports too. So it was, yeah, it was it was great to watch, I think, as a player, just to see how much kind of traction and interest it got from, yeah, all around the world, I guess. It's kind of surprised me a little bit that the depth of feeling I guess that people have had about it from from quite far away as well has it surprised you? I think it has and it it kind of is a bit sad that it has surprised me because we've obviously been so heavily involved in women's cricket for a long time now that we're in our own little bubble but I think the thing that I loved most about it was that people treated it like a game of football it wasn't women playing football it was just a game of football like my cricket club which is obviously a men's team they all came down to the cricket club and put the big screen on and had some beers and watched it. And I just think that that would never have happened 10 years ago. So I think the fact that that, I guess, just the opinion of people watching women's women in sport is starting to change. And I think if people could switch that on and watch it and enjoy it as a game of football, then those opinions of four people might be a bit like, well, if I watch cricket, maybe I'll enjoy that. If I watch women's rugby, I might enjoy that. It's just, it's, People don't watch it because they think it's not good. But now there's been investment. We've had the ability to train consistently for about 10 years now. So the standard is improving, which makes it a good spectacle, whether it's women or men. So that was the thing that I loved the most about that campaign was, yeah, just the fact that people wanted to watch it as a sport, not because it was women in sport or men in sport. You've mentioned the 100, which a lot of people have kind of referred to when they've been talking about the successes of the Lionesses and that, as you say, Kate, people wanting to watch something because it's sport, not because it's women's sport, not because it's men's sport, just because if you like football, you're going to enjoy this. If you like cricket, you're going to enjoy this. And the thing that's interesting about the 100 is that it's it's mixed, right? Could you explain it to me a little bit and, and to the listeners what, what the 100 actually is? The 100 is a like franchise domestic competition which um is very similar to t20 cricket in terms of the length of time but just with a few few different rules so kind of instead of using overs we use like sets of five balls and as opposed to t20 cricket another cricket you can bowl 10 balls from one end as opposed to like bowling one over from each end so kind of slight little rule changes in there um, which make it a little bit different and change the tactics a little bit but i think kind of what's come out of it is being quite a lot quicker and faster and because it's obviously a little bit shorter it means people when you're batting you kind of go for it a little bit more and yeah tactics just kind of change in that way but I think it's been really exciting and yeah there's been some really good games on and I think it's you know hopefully appealed to more people outside cricket the cricketing world. The biggest thing it is is that it's the first time that a league has been created around the world where the men and the women have been created at the same time as teams so there's there's this real effort to try and make it a one club kind of feel so as the Manchester Originals we've always got Manchester Originals women and the Manchester Originals men and the games are always played before or after each other so Manchester Originals play on one day and you'll go and support that team but for example like the the women's big bash that only was created seven years after the men's big bash had been made so they kind of rode the the coattails a little bit of that tournament whereas we've kind of set this off as as a big I can't say the word equality because the the money isn't there yet but it, you know the aim is to make it as much of a level footing as possible for the women and the men and actually what we've seen in the last certainly this year but last year as well with the is that the tournament is so important that the women are involved in it we had to start our season a little bit later this year because of the Commonwealth Games and it just didn't feel right having just the men playing for 10 days before the women joined. So it, it does just go to show that it was created with that in mind um, and that seemed to work as well. So, Kate, since I last spoke to you, you've started your own podcast, the No Balls podcast. I wondered if you could tell me and the listeners a little bit about it. It's um, basically me and my best mate, Alex. We started it just because we were bored pretty much. <laughs> um, but we actually realised that there wasn't a lot of women who were involved in elite sport talking about the reality of elite sport. I've obviously got access to a lot of people as well who I've dragged on as guests. Dunks is definitely next on the list. <laughs> she has said yeah. Um, it. <laughs> but it but yeah, it just we just wanted to kind of give people a bit of an insight into what, what it's like and the reality of it. And it's not as you know, people just see you play cricket on TV and it looks really 
cool and it is don't get me wrong but there's also a lot that goes into it behind the scenes and we talk pretty openly about mental health and the rest of it is probably a load of rubbish but it's just basically two mates having a bit of a chat and yeah letting you into the behind closed doors bit of, of sport which is actually sometimes the bit that people are the most interested in so I think that's probably why it's gained so much traction and yeah like I said there's not many females doing what we're doing at the minute so we saw that there was a little little gap in the market for that. Back to the women's one day international match against India which is on the 24th of September so later this week and there are still tickets available for that which you can buy via the Lords website which is lords.org. What are you most excited about for this match Sophia? Well I think for me it'll be the first time that I've played an international at Lords and probably only the fourth time I've played there ever so I think yeah, just the fact that we are now getting to play at Lords and represent England there is something really, really special. And I suppose, yeah, the last time that England played there was in the World Cup against India, actually. So just to, to have watched that in the crowd, I guess, and, and seen that game and then to go and play there, I don't know, six years later is quite a special thing for me. And I think, well, I'm from London and my, my home club is Middlesex. So again, kind of like a home ground. And when we played for Middlesex, senior team like we, we only got to play there once throughout probably played there for seven seven or eight years so great to play at kind of kind of my home ground and, and have some family there as well who live close by so yeah it's gonna be a really exciting end to the summer and hopefully end on a, on a really high note if you want to get tickets for that match you can do so at the lord's website lords.org where can we follow you guys to see what you're up to and follow how you get on my instagram handle i think is crossy 16 and mine's just Sophia Dunkley. Nice and simple. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And where can we follow the We Got Game platform that we talked about earlier? At We Got Game Official on Instagram. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank You're you welcome. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film, which is about the making of a film, which seems to be a very early version of Outlander, <laughs> did we watch this week? Well, this week, I had a legitimate reason to watch Tom Holland's performance on Lip Sync Battle another eight times. <laughs> what a glorious feeling. So thank you, 1952, Singing in the Rain, which, in fairness, contains some pretty good dance routines itself. Despite only modest success at the box office when it came out in the US in March 1952, landing in the UK on September the 19th that year, Singing in the Rain has gone on to become regarded by many as the greatest musical of all time. Mm. West Side Story and Rocky Horror Picture Show fans might have a grumble about that, but mm. Singing in the Rain topped the AFI's Greatest Movie Musicals list, is ranked as the fifth greatest American motion picture of all time, and boasts a 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. It's also often touted as a musical for people who hate musicals, but we'll get to that. Gene Kelly is the big name here, and when I say big, I mean massive. His previous MGM musical, 1951's An American in Paris, had just bagged six Oscars, including Best Picture. For Singing in the Rain, he's in front of the camera as our protagonist, Don Lockwood, behind the camera as co-director with Stanley Donan, and very much in charge of what the camera's seeing as choreographer. In fact, Kelly revolutionised camera work when it came to the filming of dance, which is key to much of Singing in the Rain's success, particularly when it comes to the big song and dance numbers, as he swoops the camera along with the dance, taking us right into the action, which was a huge change from the static camera eye that came before. He's joined by Donald O'Connor as his childhood pal Cosmo Brown and Debbie Reynolds as his very young love interest, Kathy Selden, both delivering incredible Oliver Putnam energy. There's also Gene Hagen as Lena Lamont, the silent movie star with a face like an angel and a voice like nails down a blackboard, who aside from the dancing, pretty much steals the show for me. And for what it's worth, I like her Brooklyn drawl, but that ain't what was wanted in an era <laughs> when silent movies became talkies. I'm not alone in liking her shtick. Hagen was the only one nominated for an Oscar for her turn, but didn't win, while Donald O'Connor took home a Golden Globe, surely purely for tossing himself all over the shop in Make Em Laugh. And Betty Comden and Adolf, there's a name that went out of fashion, eh? Uh, Green <laughs> bagged a Writers Guild of America award for Best Written American Musical. 
A little fun fact about Make Em Laugh. This is aimed at Hannah. O'Connor was a four-pack-a-day smoker at the time and he had to stay in bed in the hospital for several days after filming that sequence. I didn't smoke four packs a day. And you don't dance like him either, do you? No. I run up the wall in exactly the way that he does it in the full Monty as opposed to the way that he does it. You're more Hugo Spear, which you know. Yeah. Compounded generously of music, dance, colour, spectacle and a riotous abundance of Gene Kelly, Gene Hagen and Donald O'Connor on the screen, all elements in this rainbow programme are carefully contrived and guaranteed to lift the dollars of winter and put you in a buttercup mood. What? (laughs) Clearly not my words, but those of the contemporary New York Times reviewer, the excellently named Bosley Crowther. And Crowther wasn't alone among critics in praising Singing in the Rain at the time. It just didn't translate into box office success, with the film making a rather paltry $666,000 profit. I see something in that. I see something in that. And anyway, since that, it has been placed on a pedestal and never once looked like falling off. Maybe it sold its soul, Hannah. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Had either of you seen it before? Nope. Never. Interesting. No, I'd seen pieces of it before, Mm. obviously, because bits of it are very famous. Yes. And also, I was really surprised by how many of the songs I knew, but I did some reading and apparently most of them have been used in other stuff as well. So that might explain that. Indeed. Remind me how you both feel about musicals. Not a massive fan. I, I really like West Side Story, but apart from that, I'm not big into musicals. There's a lot of bangers in West Side Story, so, you know... You know how I feel about that. Some bangers in this film as well, to be fair, but we'll, we'll get onto that. I like some musicals, but uh, cinema would not be my preferred medium of seeing a musical. If I was going to see a musical, I would rather see it on stage. Yeah, I think that's the same for me. And actually, most of the time, I'd rather not see a musical. Let's talk about the plot. Given MGM, as Hannah just hinted, told them to mash up a load of songs they already had into some sort of story, a scheme by producer Arthur Freed to squeeze some more profit out of his musty old compositions from the 20s and 30s, it's a miracle there is any plot. But there is, and I am going to head back to that review from the 1952 New York Times, in which Bosley Crowther describes it thus... It's plot, if that's what you'd call it, concerns a silent film star who is linked with a slut voice leading lady while wooing a thrushy new young thing. I mean... A slut voice? Yeah, yeah. It's rude, Gosh, isn't it? It is. In fairness, Big Boss's C ain't wrong, but there is a bit more to it. Stuntman turned silent screen star Don Lockwood, that's Kelly, falls hard for chopsy talented and so very young Kathy Selden, that's <laughs> Debbie Reynolds. At the moment, silent cinema gives way to the talkies. So gets Kathy a job dubbing his long-term screen partner, squawky voice Lena Lamont, that's Hagen. But the picture still lacks pizzazz. So along with best pal Cosmo Brown, O'Connell, the trio invent the musical. It's meta, baby! But when Lena discovers she's been cast aside both as Don's on-screen and off-screen partner, although, to be fair, that she's misunderstood the latter for years is incomprehensible, even for a character (laughs) who's meant to be thick as pig shit. She suddenly gets smart as paint and challenges the contract, trapping Kathy into silence about her role in the new movie's success. Step up Don and Cosmo to humiliate Lena like the gentlemen they are and give (laughs) Kathy her place in the spotlight. Shall we start with the women? May I have your thoughts on Kathy and Lena? I am very much team Lena until the end and then she is a bit of a twat, to be honest. But I don't blame her because they've been fucking horrible to her the whole way through. She's very sexually mm. aggressive mind, so I can see like why that would get a bit boring for Don because like, there's no whiff of a romance there and she's just... She is relentless in her pursuit. But uh, but yeah, I felt pretty bad for Lena in this film. I'm not going to lie. I think Debbie Reynolds is amazing in this. But almost everything about her plot makes me cringe because it's seedy. <laughs> yeah, hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? There's so much sort of like ironies in here. So, you know, the film's about how the actress isn't really being respected, but Debbie Reynolds apparently had to get, despite being the star of this, apparently had to get three buses into work in the morning. Mm. Nobody sent her a car. She is also being dubbed in this. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the plot line is about dubbing. So Yeah, so actually Hagen dubs her own voice 
and Reynolds was dubbed over by a woman called Betty Noyes, including on the bit where she's dubbing Lena. It's meta yeah. again, baby. Yeah. So I don't think this is a film that respects women, but given my absolute loathing of Cosmo's Norman Wisdom-esque <laughs> stuff, um, the women are absolutely my favourite thing in it. It's very of its time, isn't it, in that uh, it's patriarchal as fuck. Yeah. But I would say they both have got agency. I do feel like Kathy's yeah. agency at the beginning is very swiftly undermined by the romance that yeah. she falls into with Don. I also don't like the treatment of Lena, but I'm sure she gets a lot of excellent lines. And it does feel like Jean Hagen's having quite a lot of fun. I feel like she's enjoying yeah. herself. I also like Zelda and the woman who's dressed as Morticia. Um, they appear to be having a lot of fun. And in fact, they are probably the funniest things in it, I would say. Is that in Broadway Melody? No, when they first turn up at the... Um, yeah. When they first turn up at the premiere, the premiere in which he gives the longest... The <laughs> l- longest ever red carpet into the side of a microphone. That was going to be the joke I was going to open with at the top. And just generally throughout it, they're quite fun. They've got like that air of like 1920s flapper women. Mm. Yeah. Do we think it's a sexist film? Yes, massively. Um, enormously. Almost certainly, yes. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, it's 70 years old, so that's not yeah. hugely surprising, is it? I don't think it's, like, malicious. I don't think there's any malice to it. I think it's just indicative of, of the, the way women would have been viewed 70 years ago. Mm. Interestingly, in that premiere bit at the start, actually, the first five minutes, because I was dreading watching this, I put it off to the last minute. Oh, really? Minute, Interesting. And, yeah, and in the first five minutes, I thought, oh, actually, this is a relatively good satire. It's quite funny. They've got her walking along Zelda. So that guy who just stands up and shouts, Zelda, it's really funny. She's tottering along next to uh, an eligible bachelor who's like 70. And I thought, oh, actually, this is going to be quite satirically funny. But it goes downhill for me after that. There is a surprise, of course, in the sexism states in that Don prefers the young malleable ingenue to the woman who's gotten above her step. Oh, no, no surprise there at all. <laughs> no. no shit. I'm going to go where Hannah was just sort of gently treading and talk about the plot. I am going to start with Hannah, given her itchy skin when it comes to plot holes and unbelievability. Yeah. What did you think of the plot? Funnily enough, when I sat down to when I finally psyched myself up, I thought, I wonder if this is actually going to have a plot or it's going to be a loose way of tying a load of songs together like Mamma Mia. Mm. And yeah, it's got exactly the same quality of plot as Mamma Mia, I would say, in that it's ridiculous. The bit where he, they, they show the talkie and then that film appears to be coming out tomorrow and then they've got three weeks to find film. It's just the time frame in it is absolutely <laughs> batshit, like totally batshit. Jenster? I, I thought the plot was, you know, it's pretty limited. It's pretty basic, but it didn't like, you know, it didn't, I didn't think it was that awful. I think the sort of the timing thing, Hannah, was interesting because it's kind of like, I feel like the there were two acts basically and the first act went on until like the last half hour and then everything happened in the last half hour and I don't really understand how that all happened so quickly. A good 15 minutes. Oh, actually, I wrote it down. I think it's 13 minutes, in fact, of the last bit is one single song and dance number. I mean, there's like the Mars Volta don't have performances that go on for 13 minutes. Pink Floyd don't go on for 13 minutes. That was just so long that I actually had to skip through some of it. That which Hannah is referring to is Broadway Melody. And while it is brilliantly filmed and it's massively innovative for its time, it does go on for, Hannah said 30 minutes. I got it eight hours is what I actually recorded. <laughs> and it has no point whatsoever. It's just it's just something Gene Kelly apparently wanted to do. And I could have done without it because yeah. what does it bring to the plot? It Nothing. did feel like a... Um... A massive, massive vanity project, like in every possible mm-hmm. way. Because obviously they've gone like, oh well, we've got this old shit. What do we do with that? Let's let's make it. Let's flog that cash cow a bit, and then it's all like in jokes about Hollywood and whatever and blah 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 blah. Like the whole thing did feel like Gene Kelly's just had the biggest wank ever, basically, and and that's sort of what what's happened. Yeah. And the idea that people tossing a coin up in the air is menacing befuddled me. But they just kept doing it. They just kept throwing that coin up in the air. He's just got to dance, guys. 
I would say about the plot, I actually found the insights into, and they were small because obviously it's not its focus, but into what the transition from silent films to talkies would have been like really interesting, like the placement of microphones, the huge change. And and it it wasn't quite as quick as they make out, but the huge and very fast change in how things were done must have been really confuddling for a lot of the actors at the time can't remember who it was now but i watched an episode of who do you think you are in which somebody discovered that their grandfather used to play piano in the cinema and that was his job Mm. and then he lost his job of course yeah just you know overnight basically and i thought isn't that interesting you know another casualty of progress you forget that there's been casualties of progress for years and years and years and years and years I found bits of that slightly triggering because uh, <laughs> as people who work in audio, the the bit where she's got her necklace on and he's like, what is that noise? And, and it's like, it's her playing mm. with the beads on her necklace. I'm like, how many fucking interviews where someone's had like a jangly bracelet on or something? And it's just like, bosh, bosh, yeah. bosh the whole way through. So, Yeah, and also that singing in the rain is laughing at silent movies. It's kind of... Yeah. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? Because if it hadn't been for silent movies, you wouldn't have talkie movies. Mm. So, you know, you've got to maybe respect the history a little bit more, but it doesn't. Yeah, agreed. I will say, though, because you've mentioned it, much as that this film wasn't for me, Singing in the Rain is spectacular. Absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. It's almost as if it's a shame that they didn't just make <laughs> one song, like because it turned into an advert, didn't it? You know, back in the back in the day. Mm. But it's a shame that they didn't just make a ten-minute thing. That that was. I would sit and watch that. I would pay to go and see that. The rest of it around the edges is just fluff and bunkum. Like I say, much as I think Debbie Reynolds is terrific in this, even though that's not her singing. But fucking hell, she's doing some great hoofing. She danced so hard her feet bled. Apparently, Gene Kelly was wow. a real harsh taskmaster. Can we talk about Gene Kelly? Because the closest thing to I've had to do anything to do with Gene Kelly is I did once sleep with an American in Paris. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I wish you could see mine and Jen's faces, listeners, because we were not expecting this this diversion. I think we can. I think like we can all say that we've none of us had very much to do with Gene Kelly. <laughs> It's like, where? What's Hannah had to do? I've never been a fan. I've never watched any of his stuff. I think my nan and my granddad probably would have liked this because they like that kind of Norman Wisdom esque stuff. Mm. You know, the falling over and the make them laugh stuff. But I've never watched anything with him in it, and I found him really interesting to watch because I think he's exactly at the midway point between George Clooney and Kevin Spacey. In the at mm. some points, I look at him and I think, oh, actually, you you were quite you were quite good looking, mm. you were quite debonair, yeah. you were quite dashing. And at other points, I think, oh, you're creepy as fuck. <laughs> I'd seen this before with my granddad, who is a huge sort of fan of this, loved Norman Wisdom, Hannah, but also Western. So I don't know how you'd have felt in that house. But yeah, so I- sorry, I was just thinking about Norman Wisdom in a Western. <laughs> I bet there is some sort of Western influence, Norman yeah. Western film. And he's probably still falling off a ladder while cleaning a window in it. I just threw With some saloon doors. <laughs> oh, Mr. Grimsdale. <laughs> oh, we've, we've, we've wandered. But yeah, Gene Kelly is really interesting. There's a brilliant bit of film where he is dancing with Jerry the Mouse from Tom and Jerry in a film called Anchors Away. Away spelt A-W-E-I-G-H. And it's so ahead of its time. It's amazing. The choreography, I think, you know, whether you like this film or not, the choreography is astonishing. Mm. And I think it works as a musical. Going back to that thing of, is it the musical for people who hate musicals? As the one of us who dislikes them potentially the most, I do think it works The songs are scattered, apparently, at random. They often have fuck all to do with the plot and they are spaced out so that you're like, is this a musical still? And then suddenly you're like, oh, there's seven songs at once. But I think it does keep an eye on its plot and is still a musical, so I do think it works. And I'd say on paper it's not really my kind of film, but I sort of found it irresistible even though I wasn't expecting to. The dancing, the colours, it's so cheerful. The sheer exuberant joy on their little faces, splashing in puddles, come on! But is that, do you think, because you watched it with your granddad, so you have like a fondness for it because you have a fondness for that time you spent with your granddad? 
Jen, don't you be coming here with your nostalgia so, <laughs> and how you feel about yeah. things and putting it... Of course, that's exactly why. <laughs> yeah, totally. Were you not a fan either, Jen? Yeah, I didn't like... I didn't hate it. I enjoyed some of the songs. Obviously, Singing in the Rain is fantastic. I, I really enjoyed Lena in it. I thought she was a great character and I thought she was having a lovely mm. time. And uh, she she is quite sexually aggressive, but, you know... Well, Debbie Reynolds is very young. Anyway... Um, so like, yeah, I didn't not enjoy it. I wouldn't say I was dreading watching it. I wasn't looking forward to watching it, but I probably enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Ahead of the question that we ask every week, I wondered if you thought it deserved its place in the film pantheon where it is absolutely lionised and lauded. I mean, no, I can think of better musicals than this. I don't feel qualified to have an opinion on that because I understand that like because from what you're saying Mick is it was actually quite an important film because of the advances Mm. in like the the camera technology and also the choreography and things like that like I just I just don't know enough about that stuff but I think like it it sounds as if there are kind of technical reasons why it's in in the pantheon rather than just like people like it do you know what I mean so in that respect it probably does deserve to be in the pantheon if it changed the way things were done then that's you know credit to it i guess yeah i think i agree with you all right rated or dated it's a big dated for me but i didn't not enjoy watching it hannah yeah i mean it's it's dated almost certainly <laughs> she's <laughs> i mean it's, years I old. it's it. almost certainly dated <laughs> yeah I'm going to say it's rated. I think it still stands up. There's probably some nostalgia in there. And while I'm on my own here, though, I realise I'm very much not on my own in how a lot of people feel about singing in the rain. So I'm in quite good company and still thinking this film's got a lot of merit. Agreed. What are we watching next? Something that I'm not entirely sure that either of you will agree has a lot of merit. Let's do it anyway, because I fucking love it. Glengarry Glen Ross. I see, I've never seen it, but I've heard you talk about it in, you know, exalted terms. So I'm excited to watch it. But I haven't watched it in ages and it's a great play. But is it a great film? Although it does have Alan Arkin in it. Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 